Hey, welcome to this podcast mashup. We got a couple different podcasts with us today: Sacred City Vision Drip, Sacred City Life. I don't even know what yours is called, Nick, but you got a podcast in in Hope City uh, Church. Um, I am joined with two very special guests today. Um, we are actually here in the middle of the Porterbrook Seminar Day. I'm joined with Nick Powell, church planter in Clinton, Iowa. We've had, actually had him here a couple times to preach, both Sacred City Davenport, Sacred City Moline. Good guy, college friend of mine. Um, and he's planted recently, accumulating a core team. And a very special guest, Hugh Halter. Um, Hugh is an author, speaker, I don't know, I mean, entrepreneur, go down the line. He's got quite... Uh, uh, an archive of stories, and uh, he's been a very influential guy in the way that Sacred City is organized and the way that we do church. Um, I remember my first exposure to Hugh was way back, uh, probably six, seven, maybe even eight years ago at the Verge mm-hmm. Conference. I yeah. uh, heard Hugh teach, um, and so we uh, were very privileged to have him with us this morning, and, uh, and we just want to sit and talk um, and chop up uh, about, um, you know, what church looks like, kind of catching a vision for mission and, and ministry in our cities. Um, and so let's just start this off. I, I, Hugh, I know we're, we're sitting in a time right now, and just to get this conversation rolling, um, COVID has been a factor. Um, in what ways, you know, as, as large gatherings are limited, as, you know, people are, are maybe a little more cautious going out, what ways do you see this being at, like a, a and actually an asset to the church in moving forward with the mission and making disciples. That's a good point. I always uh, reflect on, you know, like in our lives, how many times do we know that the Lord stopped bad things from happening? And most of us can recount something where we go, yeah, God stepped in and saved us from a car wreck or from my daughter being, you know, overly sick at a hospital or something. But um, so I think most most of us actually believe Jesus stops bad, bad things from happening. But mm-hmm he didn't stop this whole COVID thing. Like, it's crazy to think on March 15 of 20, uh, almost every church stopped gathering. Like, I don't even know. I, you don't hear a lot of people talking about that, but like one day, the uh, the essence of what we thought church was, literally, we had to figure out some other way. So I I think that's literally not so much what we're what's coming out of it as an asset, but I think just that gut check and the mental, spiritual, you know, observation that we all have to go. Oh, I wonder what the Lord's doing. I wonder if you know. Some you know, on some sides, people think this is a judgment. Could be. I mean, God makes a lot of comments about how He just gets sick and tired of just church gatherings. He talked about that in the Old Testament. Jesus referenced it. You know. Um, so maybe maybe God is tired of, you know, what the church has sort of uh, brought the gospel down to, and maybe maybe He's okay with this. On on the high side, yeah, it could be a time of incredible innovation about what what we are as a church and what the forms might look like in this setting. So definitely, and that's yeah. something that you're known for as far as the innovation of the church and sort of reimagining. Um, what church life actually looks like, and and uh, Hugh just got done teaching the, the opening session of Porterbrook and sharing a little bit of his story. And you've you've been in you know the sexy cities, Portland and Denver, yeah. and yeah. then just recently, uh, you know, within the last was it three or four years? Is that right? Uh, yeah, we moved to Alton five years ago. So yeah. just down the river from us, uh, on the north side of St. Louis, um, small river town of Alton, Illinois, and. Um, you know, the things that I've always been, I've appreciated about 
your teaching and your life, your stories, which you've got tons of great stories, is how God has used you and your family, even just hearing you talk about your daughters and the influence that they've had stepping into the city, you know, that legacy that God is creating through you of sort of reimagining what church looks like. So, so in this context where you're at, you know, how, how do you feel like God is using you or what does this look like to say, okay, if we were to peek in on Hugh's life, what does kingdom work look like in this in this season of your life? Yeah, I mean, for me, this is different. People knew this from the tangible kingdom, which was really a story of a network of missionary communities, right? So it was, it was mostly what you would just almost envision as neighborhood communities. Um, I'm, I tend to be evangelistic in my mindset. Like when I wake up in the morning, I'm generally thinking about lost people coming to faith, right? Mm. And so... And that's way back in my Youth for Christ days and just my personal gifting. I just kind of go there. Um, on the, on, I guess on the side that I now feel like I'm evolving out of, it didn't have much to do with uh, the poor for a long time. You know, our first church plant was inner city, so we definitely were dealing with more poverty issues and more holistic nature of the church in that. But the Tangible Kingdom story was such a fun relational spiritual thing. Like, it was just a lot of people coming to faith in neighborhoods and a lot of goofing around in Denver together. Like, it mm. literally was fun. When we moved to Alton, it went back to what I'm now really seeing as a center issue for the Lord. And it's just two-thirds of Scripture are referencing the poor and the marginalized. So, um, and I can't even claim that, you know, I made a great decision. I, you know, if you've heard the story today, I didn't want to go. I, yeah. I love Denver. Um, it sounded a little bit like Jonah. Yeah, to it, that's how I felt. Um, <laughs> but, you know, now that we've been there, as I'm teaching church planters now, um, I definitely am saying, like, there's something very significant about going to places where they have lost a lot. Be, you know, on one primary strategic point, if... Uh, if I try to do something like we've done in Alton and Denver, doesn't I don't think it works mm. because Denver has all sorts of stuff, right? So yeah. does Portland. When you find towns that have lost most of their stuff, and then you even do one even crappy good work, it actually might change the whole city. You yeah. know, and you know I would not say that we're changing the city, but a lot of people have said that we started a innovation sort of boom in Alton. Like we gave our little story gave a lot of the townspeople uh, some sense that there was some movement. Um, so yeah, you know, when my wife joked about like, let's go, or it wasn't a joke to her, but let's go see if we can help this town. I think in my mind, I went, look, we can't help a town. You can never help a town. Um, you can maybe help a few people, but I actually think we can help towns, you know, if we find really struggling areas. Yeah. So sounds like there's similarities in Alton. I mean, if you drive down the main street, you know, fifth Avenue, fourth Avenue of, of Moline, you'll see on the main street, you know, old businesses sort of boarded up, abandoned, you know, not there, there's been some development and, and I know Clinton's, you know, drive down the main drag, same sort of story. What is it about places like this that, that sort of catches your imagination of, of what could be? Redemption, like the gospel to me, is always about redeeming, right? So when, And it redeems broken things. So tangible spaces, again, I don't think we really realize it that much, but you know, people even referred to me as like the non-building guy because most of our stories were never about the building, right? right. We could do just fine without a church building. But when you think about the renovation of cities or opening the cities back open to the gospel, space making becomes a key part of that. 
Yeah. Spaces make atmosphere. And so where church buildings, um, at least in the contemporary area, we made terrible looking buildings. Like where we're sitting right now, this is actually a cool old building, right? So there's mm. some, it's a lot of uh, atmosphere that comes in an old historical church. Um, we messed that up, I think, during the 70s, 80s, 90s. We just started building goofy looking things. But um, I feel like to create space again, atmosphere where people want to be together is at the center of what it means to actually do city or, you know, community renewal or revitalization. Yeah. That's one of our, our, you know, we've got our mission statement, make disciples, plant churches, renew the city. And and I think the, the renew the city piece is always kind of the, like the most vague for people. Like yeah. I think part of becoming a Christian and, and getting Jesus's eyes for the people in the city it takes time to really own that, and and I've what I find fascinating is the way that you're doing that with Post Commons because what you're talking about is you, you've been basically given yep. an old rundown post office, and here you make a community space the way that you talk about uh, a living room for the community, yep. where people are interacting, um, where you're adding value. I talk about this with guys often. It's like part of being a a, a Jesus person is wherever you step foot, you add value, yes. and so. The way that you've been doing this with, you know, post commons is is just unbelievable. Why, as you do this, like, are you finding people are hungry for this in the city? Well, yeah, I mean, literally, people have come in, you know, tons. You know, I won't say thousands, but many, many people have just thanked us for taking that old building because it's right in the center of downtown, right next to city hall. So everybody's driven by this building forever. Um, so there is a thankfulness by the peasantry, if you will, the standard folks to go, yeah, you've done something important, but you know, I, I'll tell you where we've taken the heat from has been from the Christian leaders, oh, strangely right. enough. Yeah. And uh, what, what's that about? In some ways, because we succeeded any success when you're in struggling towns, if you succeed, you have to be careful with, with success. Um, and I don't know if we played it perfectly at all, but, um, God just, you know, when he gave us the building, he also gave us a lot of money to fix it really fast from very weird places. That's why I said no originally. I didn't think I could afford or raise enough money to fix it. And a half a million dollars came in in about six weeks' time. It's wild. Yeah, and so, like, but to locals who had maybe wanted that building, there were some Christian leaders that wanted that building because they wanted to do the same thing that we did. They just didn't get it done. Hmm or probably couldn't have, so we come in as outsiders. So in small, struggling towns, the outsider factor is huge. Yeah. Now, again, the peasants loved us because we at least did something, but the people that are in a city that have been trying to help it when they've struggled and feel like they haven't had the success, and then so... And I don't know the answer to that. You know, I don't... You know, I I think I'd feel exactly like they did. I had one pastor that came in probably six months into business, and said, can can I talk with you just for a minute? And he introduced himself, and he said, I've hated your guts ever since you moved to this town. <laughs> it's a great way to start a conversation. Yeah, it was like, it was like, great. And he goes, I thought for sure you were coming to just gut all of our churches. He, you know, he knew my persona, so I think, um, but he also said, but I also tried to get this building to do exactly what you've done with it. And he goes, I just have, I've hated you, and I realize for whatever reason, God chose you to do this at this time, and I would like to come in here and drink coffee here every day, so I just felt like I needed to, you know, I was like, great. So he apologized, and 
you know, he's in there every day now. So, but it, it is, I, I realize that there's a lot of pain in broken cities. And a lot of the pain is you just can't succeed at anything because there isn't the funding or the, so what were, what were you going to say, Nick? Well, I, I'm from Clinton. And so I'm planting a church in the context similar mm-hmm. to yours. And I'm one of the natives. And so I feel, uh, I feel that like I've, I've been a part of so many conversations with yeah. my own family members and friends where we've had those types of talks. Like, I like to think of it as like we recreationally complain about things. Like it's just part of the atmosphere of the place. Totally. And so there's a strong sense of like any outsider coming in to do that. I mean, I feel this. My mom works for the city uh, of Clinton and she works for the city assessor's office. And so she's familiar with like the way property changes hands and things like that. So I'm familiar with people from outside owning property in our little yep. run downtown. Yep. And it makes me personally mad to... Now, if I had rolled into your town and did this, yeah, you would want to shoot me in the neck. Probably. Totally. N- I mean, now with the perspective that I have, maybe not. But like, I guess that's I feel that sympathy and that empathy with those totally. folks that are like, dude, who's this guy coming from the big city? Yeah. Like, thinking he can just come in here and do this thing. So how have you like won trust? Like, how do you think through Christology? Like, Because I feel like incarnation is something I'm always thinking through. And I think through that f- from the lens of being a native yeah. is like the street cred that I can pull with people yeah. uh, is just different. Even though I went to college and I lived other places, um, how do you think through that as an outsider? Yeah, well, practically, we just we don't talk about anything, you know. So our nonprofit, so everybody knows the Post Commons. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows our nonprofit Lantern Network. Okay. We don't promote it. We don't, you know, um, and some of that's just to be sensitive to the city. Um, it's also because I don't think we've done that great of stuff. We've done, we've renovated one cool building. We have another home, again, that was donated to us that we've turned into a recovery house. But we try to keep all of our our good works very quiet. Mm. So we don't do fundraising banquets and tell people all the great stuff that we're doing as a nonprofit. Sure. Um, so I think that's the, the you know one key. The other thing is just over time, we just know over you know over the long haul people and it, it does happen every year you get more and more credibility with the locals even the local ministerial folks but i'd say there's still quite a bit of broken relationship with some pastors in the area you know right. i'm hoping time will heal but um, right. there were folks that were i think going to be a part of what we were doing early on and there i was just asking them to come help fix the building for a year and it just, you know, wasn't in their deal. So I just moved on and then they felt like, you know, I moved on too quick without them type of thing. So I think even there, I just feel like it's over time. And we actually do stuff where we're serving the city together, but you can tell it's just a weird relational deal when you are still succeeding. So I, I think the only play is to focus on who we're really trying to help first. We're really not, you know, first and foremost is not to be... Um, I guess, in everybody's mind's eye as their best friend. We're here to help the poor and the lost. And if we stay focused on that, I think eventually the street cred with the pastors will come. But we have really strong street cred with the locals. That's cool. so. great. One, one of the obstacles I, I was sharing earlier just about being in Moline with Iowa right across the river, you know, there, there's always something more glamorous out there, and it's hard to have an appreciation for even the brokenness and sort of the, the misery of the town itself. How, how have you, as you step into Alton, sort of developed a heart for the city? What's been 
what's been influential for you to be like, this is this is the place that I want to invest right. in? Well, the easiest answer is just people that I've run into, right? Um, so that's why we moved right downtown. We just wanted to start to meet everybody. We, we did also join a CrossFit gym. And if, you know, people are planting, if there's ever like a, a uh, low-hanging fruit is oh, to yeah. get in with a local community, which is what a, a gym is. So those two contexts, and, you know, when we open up the building, all of a sudden, in fact, opening up the business even showed us more what the city was. Because I had, you know, we were there about a year and a half before we opened where we had an idea of, of who the city was. Uh-huh. When people started coming in, it was like, oh, my gosh, like this is a whole different town um, all of a sudden, we saw the young. We saw people that were very passionate to start new things. Like there was a lot of energy that came in the building. That's cool. That we would have not have thought was there. So I would say the individual people have been what gives you the even the innovation. Like we don't we didn't come in other than to open up the businesses, the core business of the brunch cafe and the the roastery, and the event space. Other than that, we said, we're not going to start anything else. We're just going to, anybody that comes in here that wants to start something, we're going to help them start it. So That's great. Um, so literally, it's the people have driven all the mission elements. And, you know, we've also, we help people that aren't Christians start cool stuff. Yeah. Um, there's one baker named Sarah that came in, and we met her at a local kind of food market, and we were talking, and she just said, yeah, I'm trying to, you know, actually have my own bakery, and... So I said, hey, let's talk. You know, like, what do you need to get it going? She's, I just need a commercial kitchen to bake out of, to be legal. And we're like, we got one. Like, why don't you come use our space? And That's cool. Her and her husband were atheists. They Googled me, and on our first interview, she was like, um, like, we Googled you. And I'm like, what did you find? <laughs> was it good? And she's like, well, I know you're a Christian. I, and I said, well, is that going to be a problem? And she's like, yeah, it probably will be based on everything else we've run into. And I said, well, why try not to worry about that. Why don't you just like let us help you do your bakery? And the husband was very skeptical. He's like, well, how much are you going to take from our stuff? Because we were going to sell all their stuff in our coffee shop. Uh-huh. We said, fill up our stuff. And we said, well, how about we just take 20%? And they were very impressed with that. And uh, then a month later, we were praying for them in our staff meeting. And we just started to talk about how we could love them better. So we we said, how about we only take 10% just to cover sales tax? And that's when it really started to open up spiritually. And they were like, why would you, that's you know, awesome. do this for us? And we said, you know, I joked with her. I said, remember that little Jesus thing you were all freaked out about, you know? I said, we were praying for you, and we felt like we weren't loving you the way Jesus would want us to love you. So this is our best way to do that. So I said, we have no other reason to do this other than the Jesus factor. So I said, get over it, you know. And, <laughs> and she you know, she made a comment a few months ago. She, we, we did actually incubate them, so we helped them with the marketing and with you know getting the word out. They now just opened up their own brick-and-mortar bakery. Right on. And they are asking me to come do the ribbon cutting next month to open it up. That's and cool. They tell everybody that we were the ones that started them. And um, she she made the comment. She goes, you're making it really hard for us not to believe. Mm. You know, so to me, that's, that's the beauty of, you know, incubating good works. Christians have tended to stick within their own world, thinking like we're the only people that do good things. But uh, we find 
all sorts of people that don't love Jesus. I mean, it's almost like we say uh, they're doing it for a different why. You know, the reason why we do what we do is a Jesus thing. The yeah. reason why Sarah is wanting to do what she and she has a huge heart for the poor and for drug addicted because she was addicted to drugs. She's been six years clean, so wow. she has the same passion we have. It's just a different why. So evangelism to me is just maybe changing the why for, yeah. for people. But when I I hear you talk, I hear two two components. First of all, you mentioned this the personal evangelism. You know, you you have this you have this disposition, this bent to be an evangelist. I, I'm curious. I I feel like as I'm pastoring people and we talk about mission and sharing the gospel with people, I feel like m- most of the people that I pastor do a good job of demonstrating the kingdom. Right? These mm-hmm. these acts of blessing and serving people. Right. But then when it gets into the like the communication of the gospel, like actually talking about Jesus, sometimes people just get weird. You know, like they've oh, I don't this weird thing talking about Jesus. Yeah. How do we remove the stigma in the church of talk like talking about Jesus is a weird thing? Yeah. It's like something that we have to become fluent in. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll frame it this way. I shared a little bit this morning is I've never had to go at somebody to try to start a conversation. So if you become a trusted person, and they start coming to you. That's a different type of conversation. Definitely. That's, then there's no pressure and there's no weirdness. You just say, "Hey, what are you processing?" And then they tell you. Mm. Um, you know, the only thing I would I initiate, and and I do initiate some things is like um, I call it the two minute talk. If I've seen somebody come into the coffee shop five or six, seven times, and it's consistent, like it's every yeah. other day or something, I'll say, "Hey." it's time for your two-minute talk. And they'll usually freak out a little bit, and I'll go, calm down. I'm like, I say, when we recognize that you're becoming a regular, we have learned that oftentimes you become a part of the family around here. Mm. So I said, I would love to remember your name at least, and it helps me to remember your name if you can just give me two minutes of your story. I actually tell them you can lie. You don't have to tell me anything truthful. I'll still, it'll still help me to remember your name. So. Yeah. And I, I can do as many of those two-minute talks as I want without any weirdness. So I'm at least initiating yeah. a conversation. And sometimes those two-minute talks, I'd say every one of them at least is 20 minutes. Some are two hours. You know, one was a six-hour two-minute talk. Wow. And a girl was actually suicidal and said that that, that talk pulled her away from what she was going to do that night. So, yeah. you know, that's that's a very unique story, but... Most of the relationships we have have come from just regulars coming in to get a cup of coffee or the CrossFitters. Um, but I have not had to initiate where I, I like try to go get some weird gospel conversation going. Yeah, They usually will come up. and Well, even like uh, Sarah's, Sarah and her husband were fighting one time. I asked Sarah how she's doing, and she's like, I'm about to kill my husband. And I said, you want me to talk to him? She's like, yeah, I would like you to talk to him. So, you know, oftentimes people will invite you into their mess. And then, you know, and the first talk wasn't about Jesus with him. It was about marriage issues and, yeah. you know, stuff like that. So I, th- I feel like it, the more your conversation is between friends, the less weird it is. Yeah. So when we're doing good things for people every once in a while, they expect Christians to do like what we call one-offs. Yep. You know, be nice, maybe be extra nice on occasion, especially around the holidays or something. <laughs> It's different when you become a friend, and now you're just talking about 60 different topics, and then one of them eventually will probably be something related to faith. Yeah. So So there's definitely, like, this relational aspect. Like, being a missionary means 
being a good friend. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah getting to hear people's story and how that fits inside with the story of God and things like that. The other thing that I'm I'm uh that that catches my attention is the fact that with the way that you're you're thinking about kingdom work happening, it's usually connected to some piece of enterprise, yeah. right? So with Post Commons, you've got the coffee shop, you've got other businesses coming in. And at Sacred City, we've got a lot of small business owners. We've got people that are influential as far as creating a, a culture. How do we, what could you maybe, sort of guidance could you provide for somebody who's who's adding, you know, has a business that's trying to add value to the city to use yeah. it as a, a vehicle for mission? Well, again, in struggling towns, just giving somebody a job is a great thing, right? So sometimes you don't have to have any, you know, huge perspective on what you're doing. Just jobs is credibility and is blessing. Um, for us, it also funds our missionaries. So a lot of the people that are kind of on leadership in our movement, they make their income from the coffee or the event space. or um, So that's that's an easy way in for them to be a sustainable missionary. Um, But, you know, it's different than, you know, just trying to be a good Christian businessman or woman. This is what makes it work in our setting is it's all very integrated in what we call kind of a kingdom ecosystem. So we don't just want random good Christian businesses. I mean, if you out here in the Midwest, almost anybody, you know, would say they're a Christian businesswoman, right? Mm. It doesn't have maybe any effect they got on them the jesus culture. fish yes. fish on their truck totally um or even more they got you know the slogans on the back of the truck whatever it is so um no impact you know other than it makes them feel like they're presenting jesus yeah. in our setting we keep the jesus thing actually pretty you know it's subversive what we're trying to lead with is good works um and letting our prosperity bless the city and the Jesus, you know, it's even interesting when you read in the New Testament about evangelism, it says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. It doesn't say on your trucks or on your banners. Yeah. It's like, in, in your heart, revere him as Lord, and then be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you. So the expectation would be that people are still going to be drawn into your ecosystem. That's People will say that all the time coming in to our building. They go, I just love your whole team. Yeah. So, and we'll talk about that. Our our strength in the city is not because we did a coffee shop. It's that our people are the commodity. Our people like being in our atmosphere, and and they see that we we have homeless folks in all the way to the mayor and city leaders, and we we hold space for this kind of unique atmosphere where people just sense that there's something different going on. I think that's the difference in that. And we don't even claim to be a Christian business. Right. You know, we're we're just, and a lot of people that work for us are not Christians. So, sure. um, and I think that's actually helpful. Yeah. As opposed to claiming, I mean, shoot, if we had claimed that we were <laughs> a Christian business coming in, or a church planter, or uh, that's a bad dream for everybody, <laughs> I think. Yeah. So, in, in doing what you do, you sort of like you talk subversive. You're kind of getting under the radar, just adding value to the community, and but ultimately, yeah. your intention is. To, yeah, to see people come to know yeah, Jesus. Yeah, and I think we talk about Jesus with more people than... I mean, I just don't know anybody else is talking to all these people about Jesus. They, it's. I think it's our community that... And we just don't try to. But I think that's that unique sort of um, nuance that is so important in the kingdom. It's All it is is humility. Like, we're not trying to say that we're something. Uh, a church planter I know is coming into Alton. You know, we met 
And he's like, what would your one thing? And we met in our post commons, you know, we're talking about, you know, him coming over from St. Louis to plant. And he's like, what's one thing you'd tell me not to do? I said, I would not come in here as a church planter. And that was, you know, and he was, he was going to start church services. I said, I just think you're going to get nowhere. And he was, you know, hard to tell him that, but that was the reality. Because mm. again, outsiders, number one, you're already 60 yards behind the line of scrimmage. Yeah. Right. An outsider coming in to start another church, 80 yards behind the line of scrimmage. Right. So I'm like, yeah, you're just killing yourself. Mm. Do you have a particular story of taking someone uh, on their journey from, you know, like I'm going through the Send Network training, which mm-hmm. has adopted a lot of the Alan yeah. Hirsch and yeah. like Christology, you know, missiology, all that. What does it look like for someone to come into your space and to meet Jesus, start following Jesus, uh, and then for him to put into him or her put into practice? Like I'm now practicing the way of Jesus. Yeah. Hugh, what does that look yeah. like? Okay, so it hasn't happened with Sarah, but let's take because I've shared the Baker story. Mm-hmm. So you can see the her progression in talking with her and her husband. They've actually come to our missional community. So they're in environments where they're hearing us talk about through the, the teachings of Jesus. Um, so, the, but again, that's the basic progression: is come in through our businesses, come in through our social networks, um, let us help you do something that's important to you, mm-hmm. and then start getting into some context where you're in conversation with us when we're teaching about Jesus. And then from there, we know we know how that story ends. From there, it's just life discipling. But in our setting, we talk about, like, tables. So the common yoga to the people that work in the roastery to the people that work in the restaurant to uh, the recovery house, we say all of those, they may not all set tables, but the goal is that every one of those will set a table. And a table to us is when it gets to we're talking around food and, you know, Jesus. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's it is intentionally driven towards that, but it's it's in the context of whatever those the table setup was. So if there's people. So let's say our recovery house down on Central Avenue. Um, that's a family that lives in this house. We've got a homeless gentleman, it's about seventy, in there, and a single mom with a seven month old baby that came out of the foster care system that my daughter was working for. Okay, so that's how we fill the house. Um, but this house also is a neighborhood home, so it's. You know, it's in a predominantly black part of town. So this family, you go in there any time of day, there's at least five to 15 kids from the neighborhood that don't have, you know, usually two parents. Um, So they set a table literally every night. And almost any meal, you're going to find a handful of people from the neighborhood. So, And in that table, they're starting to get all the Jesus stuff Mm -hmm. because that family likes to pray over the food, but also they talk to all the kids about, where they've seen Jesus that day in school. So that's just one example of a table. Uh, Cheryl and I, we set a table called the Abbey, which is a co-ed every other week time, and that's about 40 people, half CrossFit, half coffee shop people. Okay. That we just say, and they all came to us. So I said, yeah, we're going to have a great dinner, and then we're going to talk about the teachings of Jesus. Um, I did another thing with men every other uh, Wednesday night at the Post uh, over at the Whiskey Bar, and it's the same deal. We talk through the teachings of Jesus. We're going through the book of James right now. So, um, but for us, you know, we separate the business. Um, we go, let's build the business to a table. So when my daughter starts common yoga, 
it's it's a donation based yoga so that it's not a yoga is usually really expensive so we make a donation to get people that are, and she focuses on people that are living in trauma. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but the coaching for her is, okay, you got the yoga going now, there's 30 people in there every class. How do we add the table to that? And the table is how you begin to invite people to yeah. actually talk about spiritual things. Yeah. So I don't know if that helps, but yeah. that's kind of our philosophy. That makes sense. I think a lot of people, like I grew up in the church, and I, I think you probably run into this all the time, is that people hear your story and they're like, well, what are you doing for church? Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's, it's always a story. And, yeah. I, and I always say this whole thing that I've just described is church right. to me. Yeah. Every, you know. And it's such a strange, even for, uh, I'm a 31-year-old, like I've lived in Des Moines and, you know, I have conversations about bands and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, even for me, I'm like, I feel like a stodgy yes. church guy. <laughs> and uh, And so I know that, like I led a group of our people in Des Moines at the Sending Church with uh, through this thing called a missional living internship, and I felt way out of my league, like teaching people how to like get on mission. Right. And uh, and I remember uh, going through that and just like my goal was at the end of the day, I want them to feel like mission is doable, like that it is right. possible for mm-hmm. the average Christian who isn't super culturally savvy and all those types of things. And uh, like, what are some very simple handles that you give people or like? hearing all of this, like, how is this even doable? It sounds so, like, yeah. ninja, covert, yeah. subver- subversive, like... S- um, well, in some ways, it, like, when you start talking business, yeah, that yeah. that's intimidating uh, to some folks that go, like, I don't have that. But I always go, can you, can you imagine 40 friends in a city, though, that just whenever you get together, you actually talk about how to help incubate each other into you know, meaningful things that, that becomes a more doable conversation or can you get 20 of your friends in and all you do is you start asking what, what would be good news to our city? What would, mm-hmm. what would the town like to see happen? It doesn't always have to be a business. Right. Um, there are these kingdom ecosystems all over the country. One's called uh, common thread out of Birmingham. Um, that's one that we pattern a lot of what we do after, but they have 21 businesses. They also have uh, about 50 homes they've bought in really poor parts of town. And those are just neighborhood homes. So for the people that just do the home, that's not that big a deal. They, just, they buy a home, they move in, and they set up shop, and they commit their life to a neighborhood. Yeah. Um, that's more reasonable. Uh, and, then, and usually in their network, they'll tell people, take a couple of years and just exegete your neighborhood. And then... After about two years, let's figure out how to help you start something. So they've started CrossFit gyms for inner city kids. They've started uh, one couple started a uh, sports program because there were no sports in this whole part of town. I think they have 800 kids that go through their sports program. One started a library. Mm -hmm. They just saw so many kids walking around. They literally got an old building, you know, donated, and they set up a library. Um, So, I mean, and they're all completely different. So I think, you know... To not be intimidated is give yourself time to really look into an area and go, look, I'll commit my life to that six-block area. And after a while, I think you'll realize what to do. But you don't always have to do a business, even just a neighborhood community, a house. An open house would be a significant ministry. Yeah, like even the way that you talk about being involved with CrossFit and being in common spaces, just sort of embed, not just... Not just you know taking advantage of the perks of the city, but embedding yourself in the city and being part of the life. Yes. You know, I, I've experienced that with with CrossFit Gym myself. It's like I've I've been around for a long time, and 
it's little by little get to know people and then they kind of open up and having some of those spiritual conversations, yeah. you know, and, and usually crisis sort of prompts totally. those moving yep. forward. You know, a, a girl lost her, her father earlier this week. And so there's already been some spiritual conversations that have come yeah. out of that, that have been fertile ground for talking about Jesus and having these opportunities to share the gospel with people yeah. and, and still, you know, loving the city and, yeah. and, and seeing the city flourish, which is a huge piece of, you know, going back to adding value where, where you are. Yeah. I agree. Do you have any closing thoughts? I know we've been going here for a little bit. Do you have any lingering questions you want to ask? Um, I mean, I have a ton, but I guess one of the things I've thought of is, so have you noticed any difference? You've lived in, a, you've lived in the post-Christian sexy city, right? Like Portland or Denver or whatever. Um, as a millennial, I've noticed the difference between people my age and younger in, like, let's say Des Moines, which mm-hmm. is still pretty Midwestern, but it's more post-Christian than, uh, than Clinton. I noticed I was working at a, a bakery there. It was the best place that I've ever, I've ever worked. It was, like, the best people I worked with. But I was the only cisgendered, heteronormative person that worked there. Right. Everyone else fell into the LGBTQ community right. in some way, shape, or form. And I remember coming into work all the time thinking wow, like, they're willing to talk about deep, heavy things, but they always want to know what team I play for. Yeah, Um, That was the thing I always bumped into. And so I felt like there was so much work that I had to do to even, like, get a hearing for Jesus. That's just the way I felt. And what I've noticed is there's a radical difference between that that millennial and the millennial I'm finding in Clinton – even though there's like superficially some similarities. So there's a coffee shop in Clinton called 392. Yeah. Fantastic coffee shop. I think it's one of the best coffee shops in Iowa, and it's in Clinton. Oh. And so I'm there all the time. And very similar people, very similar stylistically, band, things like that. Yeah. But they're so receptive to God. They're, they've still maintained that residual Christian yeah. stuff where like I ask, I ask them all the time, do you believe in Jesus? Or uh, do you believe in God or anything? Like, what's your spiritual life like? And they're like, yeah, I don't know problem with God. And that's pretty typical in Clinton. Everyone kind of has just this vague understanding of, yeah, God's real, right. where there's more hostility in, like, Des Moines. And so I feel like, have you ever read Catcher in the Rye? Yes. Yeah. I feel like, it, I feel it, like it's, it's, like, painful for me, is that in Clinton I feel this breath of fresh air of feeling like I'm catching people before they go over mm-hmm. this. Yeah. precipice of into deconstructing their faith and yeah. all sorts of stuff. And so I'm like, have you noticed that in Alton or is Alton similar to like, are people who are my age and younger aggressively deconstructing? Yeah. Things? Alton is pretty progressive. So it feels a little bit like that Denver. Okay. Yeah. That's great for you, but I got my own thing. Yeah. And I, I, I love that. I actually find that it's, um, it pushes you to play the long game. Right. And again, it is a lot of the, you got to wait till the crap hits the fan, right. and you're just a, a good friend. But you're maybe that person they go, oh, maybe I could run this by halter. But yeah, I mean, it's one of the the great things to me about how Jesus allows. I mean, it's like he does take the pressure off, like we talked about. Yeah. Like I I realize I cannot talk people out of their way of thinking. Um, I can only be there as a missionary when they're ready to open up. I mean, it's, right. that's the same for us even as believers. We don't really ever grow spiritually until we're desperate for a, an area of growth in a certain aspect of our life. And we're all kind of, you know, wasting time until we get to that dilemma, right? So I, I just feel like, you know, when you, when you show up in a hurting town, 
I don't think that it's our job to fix a town or save people. Um, but I know in Alton, I'm 54. I, I view it as I'm going to be in this one town for another 30 years, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little less, depending on death, right? But I'm not going anywhere. So I go, what type of presence could I bring in this town? Yeah. And how many will come a- around to me in the next 30 years? And I think it'll be hundreds. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't worry about the results of this thing, but um, it's harder when you're planting. You feel like you got to succeed. I, I think when you realize the gospel is not, it's not a success or not success. Success is really stay in it, <laughs> like just be there long enough, and God will do cool stuff. So mm, that's a good word. Um, just as we kind of wrap up here, um, I know Pastor Justin want to be here, lead pastor of Davenport. They just had a baby. Exciting for them. Um, so Sacred City Davenport's at year 10 of church plant. Mm-hmm. Sacred City Moline, we just celebrated year four. Uh, Hope City is in their first year. What kind of closing encouragement could you give us? And, and all of our churches have, have this sort of missional community mindset. Like it's yeah. not just about Sunday morning and getting people to show up, but actually making disciples, being missionaries in the city. What sort of closing you know, encouragement, affirmations could you be given us, or, or even you yeah. know, uh, admonishing could you be given us to keep, keep true to Jesus? Yeah, I, th- I think it, you know, I'm thinking about Hebrews, that literally, you know, the great cloud of witnesses we always talk about. Like that's the only time where it says live in view of like these types of people. Yeah. And those types of people did not succeed in any metric that you and I would judge ourselves by right. in the church world. Um, but somehow we're supposed to live in view of, of suffering and just being faithful. Um, so to me, the encouragement is literally like, let's dive into this good news thing for us. Like, is it really good news for your spouse to be a part of your church plant? Is it good news for your kids is this the story you really want to tell by how you live your life? And I will tell you, being in the church planting game, a good half of those years were miserable for my wife and kids mm. because of how I was trying to build up to these metrics. Um, when I finally settled the issue of the gospel is either the good news for me or it's not going to be for anybody else, it did change things. And um, I don't, I don't work off of metrics anymore. I work off of. Um, have I enjoyed the Lord today? And have the people that run into me today, have they enjoyed me, you know? And then maybe something will happen down the road. But um, to me, that would be, I'd say take the pressure off. Oh, that's good. Lighten up, keep a sense of humor. Um, I think we're coming into a season where even if you did everything right, you might still not succeed at church metrics. Hmm. Because I think that's how bad our street cred is. We might go into a 40 to 80 year season of church history where it just keeps declining. So I think we have to go, well, does that mean we're failing? Well, no, I'm, I mean, I'm either walking with the Lord and enjoying him or I'm not. So um, that's, that could be bad news for some of your listeners, but to me, it takes the pressure off. Yeah. So definitely, especially in the, the success mindset of, you know, like the church has a different standard of success compared to a business, right? Yeah. Profits matter in a business, but, yeah. but church, obviously, we want to see people people come to faith and the yeah. numbers grow, but but faithfulness ultimately is how you define success. Totally. Yep. Cool. Well, I, Hugh, I appreciate your time. Nick, I appreciate you sitting down with us. Uh, hopefully this blessed you, encouraged you. You get some inspiration of how to engage in the city, to be a better missionary, to be a better friend with gospel intentionality, um, and just trust that the Lord's going to continue to use his people to accomplish his purposes here in Clinton, in Moline, Davenport, and far beyond. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Amen.